Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, host Brian Borzakowski catches up with Fidelity's Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, to discuss all things ranging from the Fed pause and the risks of future rate hike shocks to what she is seeing in today's market makeup and which sectors are coming out on top through this time of relative uncertainty. Denise explains that while the pause was a consensus decision from the Fed, there is still the possibility of future rate hikes due to concerns about inflation. However, looking at the data, she is seeing a much more modest picture of inflation than the Fed's actions might suggest, and no strong correlation between rate hikes and recessions. The focus should instead be on potential shocks to the consumer. Denise also takes a look at the actions of central banks globally and addresses concerns about the possibility of policy mistakes and raising rates too quickly. She highlights historical patterns and suggests that while the timing of a recession is uncertain, the most important thing for investors during this time is to focus on market lows and the ability of stocks to overcome pessimistic sentiments. This podcast was recorded on June 20th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with with yeah the, the the news that came last week the the Fed um, pause and we'll talk about CPI but what do you make of that Fed, Fed pause what did they say that you were you were looking for Yeah it was interesting that it was a full consensus pause meaning that everybody agreed not to hike rates but then also suggest that there will likely be at least one if not more rate hikes in the future um, some will call that, you know, hawkish in terms of the fact that they're going after inflation. The question now, I think, remains is whether or not that matters to markets. And I think the way Jay Powell put it in context was this is really about pace and we are changing the pace of advance so that we can let the data from all the hikes that we've already done catch up to where we are today. So the base case going forward is kind of an every other meeting being in play. And then that will allow more data to come into the picture and allow them to be data dependent. Again, the question is whether or not this even really matters to the market overall, because it's not that the Fed is always and consistently a driver of market action. Certainly when they're raising rates aggressively at 75 basis points a clip, that second derivative does tend to drive on the market. That's what we've seen. But when the terminal rate, whatever it ends up being, gets dragged out, you can actually grow as an economy into those higher rates. So they start to matter less. And sometimes investors might be surprised to know rate hikes are actually a good thing for the market, at least historically speaking, rather than a bad thing, because they are reflective of growth. So it matters why the Fed is hiking interest rates. If they can hike interest rates because there is still growth, then that's much less bad to the market than the reverse. But, but is the risk there, as you said, they're pausing to let things catch up. Do we actually know um, what the result will be sort of of the economy, um, given that we haven't sort of ingested all of these rate hikes yet? Is there still a concern that we could have a recession here or things could slow faster than maybe expected? 
yes, there is a concern of the rate hike shock, which is kind of a sudden stop thesis. Uh, that's a clear narrative in the market. I'll tell you that I haven't seen it historically in the data. I mean, even if we go back to 2009, that was clearly a sudden stop event. But really, the market, the markets, the housing market, which was the trigger for 2009, started to decline all the way back in 2005. And in fact, Consumption didn't contract, which didn't lead to the housing crisis until we saw a shock in crude oil going from essentially 70 to, let's call it 150. And that was the shock that really drove the consumer into recession that laid bare the housing crisis and debt crisis that we actually saw. So in some ways, what you don't see is that the lagged impact, or at least I don't see it in the data, the lagged impact of interest rates hike catching up all that much. And in fact, Powell alluded to this in his testimony where he said, you can pick the academic research to say whatever you want in terms of monetary policy lags. There is evidence to suggest it's actually more coincident, meaning it has a quicker impact. And there's evidence to suggest that it has a lagged impact. But it all depends on the cycle. The way I look at the data is it's actually quite hard to get the U.S. into recession. And it doesn't seem to be at least consistent historically that you sort of fall upon the weight of prior rate hikes or fall upon the weight of a late cycle expansion. It's usually that there is a shock to the U.S. consumer on top of a vulnerable situation. So you can certainly say we have a potentially vulnerable situation, although you could honestly debate that, but we haven't seen the shock yet. So to the extent you can never rule out any recession, obviously, but given the fact that real incomes are rising because deflation is decelerating, that's actually a positive catalyst for growth, not a negative. And that's the opposite that we've seen in every intro into recession. So that's kind of why I like to say really off cycle this cycle. And the time for a drag and a recession and a vulnerable consumer and economy was last year when real interest, when real income was actually contracting the most we've ever seen without a recession by about two percentage points a year. But but then um, what is the Fed doing in that? Are they just going to keep raising rates? Do they still want the economy to slow down? So there is growth. You know, that that seems to be positive uh, in some ways, but it sounds but I, I thought the intention was to slow things down. So then do they just keep hiking until things slow? Well, I can't tell you what they're going to do because right. there are people that can always change their mind and they certainly have in the past, theoretically, and I say theoretically, via history, their job is, you know, solvency as, as order number one in terms of being the lender of last resort. So don't forget that if there's ever a crisis and we essentially saw this in the banking crisis, there will be liquidity and they've proved to sort of reverse QT to support the overall economy. But their second objective is to slow inflation. And I think that's where you can debate. I and mean, we just saw the CPI come in. Overall CPI came in at 0.1%. The core, which is still sort of sticky in the sense that shelter is still sticky, came in at 0.4. But when you look at this, you know, X the shelter component, which is lagged relative to all housing prices and will likely decelerate over the course of the next year, the next year, what you're seeing is on an annualized run rate over the last six months, everything X that shelter component is now at a run rate of below one. So it's a question of whether or not we have an enduring inflation problem that the Federal Reserve actually has to tackle. Now, certainly their rhetoric is suggestive of the fact that they don't want to get in, you know, inflation expectations unanchored. 
But that said, extra shelter component, it doesn't seem to me, at least in the data, that we have a very clear, bright inflation problem. And in fact, what we saw in that data was the super core that Powell has sort of focused on, which is the core services X housing, so X that shelter component, actually came down quite a bit. So in terms of, you know, when you think of the three buckets of inflation, goods, which is now actually technically in deflation, then there's the shelter component, which is sticky but lagged with most home prices showing a deceleration that will likely keep a you know, headwind to inflation over the course of the next year. And then this core services X housing, which Powell is focused on, is now also showing signs of cracking. So when you look at the entirety of the data, you see a much more modest picture of inflation, despite the Fed's hawkish rhetoric. I know you focus uh, on, on the U.S. mostly, but the Bank of Canada did increase rates at their last meeting, um, so diverging a bit from, from the Federal Reserve. And, and there were people who weren't sure if that was the right move, just given that uh, maybe reacting a little too quickly to inflation data, just given where interest rates are and our housing market is different than in, in the U.S. Um, is there a risk here, uh, not just the Bank of Canada, but, but uh, maybe um, central banks around the world, just of a policy mistake of getting maybe too excited about raising rates when, when they should pause for a little bit longer? That's definitely the concern in the market, is that the more hawkish any central bank is, the more risk there is of a policy mistake. And that's why you're seeing this struggle in terms of the market, although the market has advanced through the terminal rate rising because of what I said, which is it matters why and at what pace any central bank raises interest rates. Now, what you're seeing is a clear difference between what the Fed has done and what other central banks have done. The Federal Reserve has done it faster and quicker, which has been more painful to the U.S. stock market and to a lesser extent the overall economy, while Europe and Canada has gone slower. So that might mean that there is, in fact, more to do outside the U.S. Now, while you could sort of think of that as a bullish construct or potentially bearish on the dollar, what I think investors are concerned about is that the policy mistake is greater outside the U.S. from a risk-reward perspective than inside the U.S. Because the Fed, as much as it might be in every other meeting, maybe a one more hike, we'll see how the inflation data comes in might be closer to the end of the rate hike cycle than any other central bank in the world. It, so all of this still feels very confusing to investors, I think. Just, uh, but, but what are you seeing? Um, talk to me about kind of what you're seeing in the market today. Uh, where are the leaders and, and, and how, how have things performed despite maybe some of this uncertainty that we're still seeing? Yeah, I don't want to say it's less confusing to me, but I think that there is a lot of historical data supporting a clear pattern recognition. I think the one that investors gravitate towards, too, is the NBER-defined recession, and this would be atypical in terms of stocks bottoming before an NBER-defined recession. But when you look at real incomes contracting, which is off-cycle this cycle, or when you look at the fact that GDI, which is not GDP, but gross domestic income, is now in contraction, and then stocks bottom about half the time historically before you even get to that contraction, that October low seems to make sense to me. The other difference this cycle between being off cycle this cycle in terms of economic indicators that I think that people should be watching is the level of persistence in terms of negative sentiment. Now, over the last week, you could certainly say that sentiment has improved and improved dramatically. But usually when you transition from very, very bearish sentiment or a high degree of pessimism that has been persistent, that bullish inflection is actually a positive indicator for future market returns. 
So that's something that you actually want to see. And pessimism is a tough indicator to look at quantitatively because I like to say it's asymmetrical, meaning it can tell you when to buy, when you are likely to climb that wall of worry, which is essentially what we've seen over the better course of the, you know, the last year, um, but it doesn't really tell you when to sell. So if you think about, again, going back to 2009 as a proxy, Sentiment essentially re-rated towards neutral, depending on how you look at it, whether it's AAII or even the VIX, you know, in about September 2009. Now, off of that March low, you had gone up on an annualized basis over 200%. So the clear, the, in, in, the very impulsive rally off of that low was done. But over the course of the next year, you were up another 37% annualized. So when you look at that, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad situation for the market just because pessimism unwound. Usually more often than not, the market actually got it right. So I find the historical data very, you know, not confusing and very constructive. This looks like a standard, uh, we discounted a recession that was more aggressive uh, well in advance, and that created an air gap for the market to climb a significant wall of worry. What people are concerned about now is, well, that thesis is going to be right at some point. And I concede it will. At some point, we will have a recession, uh, and it may or may not be severe. When that recession hits, whether it be a year, two, or three, I have less clarity on. But I will tell you from the perspective of the way you think about it from a risk rewards and investor is when is the low and is it going to be the market going to be higher by the time we reach that point. That's how I think of risk rewards. And to give a very uh, historical example of that, we had recessions in 1975, 1980, 1982, but the low between, let's call it 1976 and 1985, was actually in 1978, before the 1980 recession. And the low in 1980 was higher than the low seen in 1978. And the low in the 1982 recession, which was twice as long as the 1980 recession, was higher than the low in 1980. So in 1978, I don't think anybody would, would have believed you, but what ended up being the right case, which is, you know, you, you know, could have closed your eyes as an equity market investor and made money over the course of the next three to five years. But even if you had known that there were going to be two back-to-back -back recessions, which had essentially never happened, and one of them was the deepest recession since the 1930s. So that kind of tells you that, you know, if the low is in is very important and the stock's ability to climb that wall of worry is equally important, both are sometimes more important than the fact that you will eventually be right in terms of the recession risk. That's really interesting. So I guess the the, the point there is what stay invested. Uh, you know, don't don't pull everything out, right? If if you are worried about a recession, and we all are, that you have to know as an investor that to get that right, you have to nail timing. And if you can do that, more power to you. What I've seen is living through a couple different cycles. I cannot. Right. Um, okay, when you look at the, let's talk about the the the, um, the market makeup today: mega caps, small caps, uh, mid caps. What are you seeing when you look at the leadership there right now? Yeah, the concern in the market is that leadership is narrow and that most of the stock returns year to date are driven by five, six, a handful of stocks. Now, look, what that tells you is that it's led by mega caps because the way that math works essentially is that if caps, you know, or big caps lead the index, then they're going to produce outsized gains. 
Now, when you look at just any outperformance, I think that you see a less problematic market, meaning 50% of the constituents in the S&P 500 are up year to date. Now, it's true that only 38% are outperforming the S&P 500 benchmark, and that is in the bottom quartile of history, but it is just a bunch of outsized components that are pulling that, but that doesn't mean you couldn't have owned other stocks to beat the benchmark. So in some ways, that math sort of tells you something, but it doesn't really tell you any conclusion about whether or not even it's narrow enough to give active management a challenge, which it is a little, but it certainly doesn't tell you anything about what future returns will be. And that's why I find it interesting, because when you look historically and you say, okay, when you are at bottom quartile breadth, or the percentage of stocks outperforming the S&P 500, what happens over the next 12 months? And what you will find is an odd, clear relationship between the more narrow the market is, the higher the future returns are. And it's very monotonic, meaning that when breadth is strong, when a lot of stocks are outperforming the index, you have the lowest average market returns over the next year. When breadth is narrow and there's narrow leadership and low, what you have is the highest returns over the course of the next year. There's two reasons for that. One is that when you look back in history, it was flip-flop the year before, meaning that narrow breadth likely tells you that stocks have been poor over the last year, which is essentially what we have seen here. And most of the time, 80% of the time, to, to actually put um, a number to it, stocks actually broaden out. So if there are two ways to sort of close the gap, if stocks are up and breadth is narrow, and you can close that in terms of stocks correct back to that narrow breadth, or breadth expands to match that upside in price, 80% of the time breadth expands to match that advance in price. So that actually, to me, again, as much as people, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, the market is very narrow, that means it's a vulnerable market, that means it's going to be problematic in the future. When you look at the historical data, the data just does not present that picture at all. In fact, it's almost like a gauge of persistent negative sentiment. The more narrow the market is, and you see this with sectors as well, the more, the less sectors that outperform, the more likely it is that stocks advance over the course of the next year. And the more sectors that do outperform, the more likely that there are negative returns in the future. So it's almost like a euphoria pessimism index that you want to bet against from a contrarian perspective. That's interesting. Yeah, it is different. You're right. A lot of people think, oh, a few stocks are up. That that can't be good. But uh, so so interesting that there that there is you know historically so something different. Yes, and that's important to think about whenever you hear a data, you know, a, a description of a statistic is that if you broke it down to try and assess it in a variety of ways, and this is what I always try to do, you know, if you look at something in, let's call it five to 10 different ways, and you come to the same conclusion, then you start to have internal confidence that that's the right way to bet. When you disassemble that and you get different either statistics or different outcomes, then you know that that one data point is not nearly as predictive, and that should give you pause as an investor to bet on. So what does this mean then for uh, the small caps, mid caps? I mean, you were talking about catching up. How would that look? And, and I guess you're saying those will historically, based on the data, those look like they will catch up at some point. That's my base case, which has been you know wrong over the last year, is that small caps have lagged, mid caps have lagged, mega caps have outperformed. And that's not necessarily you know a bad thing for the market. In fact, most secular bull markets are led by mega caps, ironically, and most secular bear markets are ironically led by small caps. That said, I do see an opportunity down the cap spectrum. 
It's not that you should say short the mega caps and buy smalls and mids all day, but it is this broadening thesis that if you are worried about chasing a mega cap rally or chasing mega cap tech or even mega cap consumer discretionary, then I do think that there's opportunities within mid caps and small caps, depending on your risk tolerance, in sectors like consumer discretionary, technology, and industrials, where I'm seeing valuation support. So the key thing to think about is in small caps, you have real solid valuation support on relative price to book. We are back down to the pandemic lows. We are at recessionary wides in terms of book spreads, in terms of valuation fear, in terms of um, you know internal pessimism and fear, which is usually a good contrarian indicator. So the problem with small caps, at least I get the pushback a lot, is that fundamentals are quite poor and have been secularly poorer relative to the mega caps. And you can look at this in terms of operating margins or returns or relative earnings growth cycle to cycle. So in fact, that they have derated cycle to cycle and they have gotten cheaper on relative price to book. And if you think about this just in terms of the percentage of non-earners in the small cap universe, it used to be around, let's call it 25 to 30, and now we're more like 30 to 40. So I get a lot of pushback from investors that say this is just too much of a risky area, especially with the banking crisis, although that has an odd twist, that more like you know when the Fed uh, shows you uh, that banks are less willing to lend, that's actually a good time to buy because more likely small caps have discounted it. So, but that said, I think that there's concern around that because of the non-earners. So if that is a concern for you, mid caps, I think, offer a potential sweet spot. So if you look at the median mid cap S&P 400 to the cap S&P 500, which is not really large cap, but median to median, the S&P 400 actually out earns S&P 500. So they do have a very strong earnings growth story. And because of that strong earnings growth story, they have valuation support on earnings relative to the mega caps. And it had, you've derated basically for the last decade and even over the last year, but you still are bumping around clear valuation support that we haven't seen since 2000. So I think that that's a risk reward buy, meaning that, look, if things get worse, you've priced in a lot of concern in mid caps, less so in, in large caps, where your risk reward is now skewed to the upside. Let's talk about earnings a bit, uh, just, just on that. Uh, we were talking about earnings. Where do you think earnings could go? A lot of people think earnings will, will, will decline over the course of the year. Yes, I think coming into this, let's call it, recession or whatever it is that we're going through, reset, reallocation, the concern was that we will have an average cycle. And in an average cycle, earnings decline by an average of 15 to 20%. The problem with that average is that it really doesn't exist, right? It's wide enough from a dispersion range to drive a truck through. So you would never bet on average, especially if you can only swing the bat like once every five to 10 years in terms of a cycle. What you have seen, at least historically, is that there's been a clear relationship between the more, the higher inflation is, the less persistent or pervasive an earnings decline is. In part, that's because earnings are nominal and inflation is higher and suggestive of higher nominal, you know, nominal growth rates. But it's also the fact that what we're seeing is that when inflation is high, it can actually decelerate and that creates a tailwind for profit margins to cushion the blow, meaning that it gives back pricing power to corporate America because goods or the cost of goods sold can actually deflate faster than most cycles that we have seen since the 80s. And that is actually what we're seeing. So earnings have declined now five to 7%, which is in line with historical averages of inflationary cycles. And now we are seeing that headwind of inflation turn to a tailwind where margins might expand. 
So for those concerned that we are yet to see the recession, from an earnings perspective, we're in it, right? That's another way of saying GDI, right, which is different than GDP, gross domestic product, but gross domestic income, which is highly a function of corporate income, is now in contraction. So let's just look at history. What happens over the course of the next year once you have contracted? More likely than not, over the last over the next quarter, it gets a little worse. But if you're willing to look forward over the course of a year, 90% of the time, earnings reaccelerates, most of the time ending up positive. The one exception, again, in all the cycles since 62, was the financial crisis. So now you're starting to like bet on the financial crisis, which again, I think is risky because, you know, I think the quote was from some central banker, if you've seen one financial crisis, you've seen one financial crisis, right? They're not like indicative of other crises. They are unique to the to themselves. So I think that the right bet, at least historically speaking, is that it might be that re earnings reaccelerates. And when you look historically, say, well, that doesn't make any sense that you know earnings are bad and the market has already bottomed. In fact, most of the time, what you see is stocks bottom two to three quarters on average before the trough in earnings growth. And sometimes going back to the 80s, the 70s and 80s, when we had more inflation, five to six quarters. Again, back to that 78 example. So to me, a less bad earnings recession that we're already in with a low made in October makes a lot of historical sense to me. So I'm pretty constructive on earnings with that, you know, headwind turns a tailwind and corporate profit margins are going to be less bad than most investors think. So we have about five minutes left and uh, we've got to get to the top sectors, the bottom sectors, as we always do. So let's start with the top sectors. What, what is on your radar? What's looking good right now? All right. Top sectors technology, consumer discretionary, and industrials so are the top three. So uh, I think that there's concern in the market that technology has run too far too fast. Look, if you want to time it, that, that's fine. But what I think it shows you is that a lot was priced in. So earnings growth was particularly poor, which 70% of the time, once earnings growth is poor in technology stocks, that actually leads you out of the earnings recession. And valuation really isn't a problem. It is true that the stocks are expensive, but you usually get peak multiples on trough earnings. And there is some suggest, you know, some data that suggests that earnings have dropped. So I think the technology is still leadership, and I think the risk reward is positive. And in fact, the stocks inflecting higher is usually reflective of the stocks get it right, which means when earnings are poor and the stocks are up, 90% of the time that tells you earnings are going to be up over the course of the next year, and stocks grow into that from a valuation perspective. So I think that technology is solid, which is good because that's a big portion of the index. And I think is a good driver for the U.S. relative to the rest of the world and a good driver for the overall U.S. market. Second is consumer discretionary. And you can take, think about this on a cap-weighted basis or an equal-weighted basis. And I think both work. Both haven't worked in the course of the last, let's call it three to six months. Um, equal-weighted has actually been better over the last year. And I think we're back down to the pandemic relative. You know, it looks very much like those small caps charts that I was telling you about. We're back down to the pandemic relative price to book lows. So you've got clear valuation support in equal weighted consumer discretionary and in cap weighted consumer discretionary or just buying the overall index. I think that's a real risk reward positive because we haven't seen quite the advance that we've seen in the mega caps for technology. The one sector that keeps looking, you know, the, the highest historic odds when GDI contracts and when you transition from, you know, pessimistic sentiment to bullish sentiment is consumer discretionary. And I think the catalyst is the decline in inflation or the deceleration in inflation leading to positive real income growth for the U.S. consumer that creates this positive risk reward environment, especially when you're at valuation support. And third up would be industrials. 
Also on an equal weighted basis, look, basis looks very clear like valuation support down in mid caps, down in small caps. So you see that risk reward entry point, uh, and you also see those contrarian positive signals. When you look at NAPA new orders or ISM new orders, it is very poor at 42. That's the bottom decile reading. And the worse ISM reads, the more likely it is that, especially on an equal weighted basis, industrials outperforms over the course of the next year. So for people that are a little bit worried about chasing the technology stocks and looking for a better point of entry, I think you can still put money to work in consumer and industrials. Great. Okay. Uh, bottom three. Bottom three is anything defensive. And, you know, I struggle with it. Um, I, you know, you can put consumer staples here. You can put real estate here. I'm also going to put energy here because a lot of people do own energy. Not a lot of people own consumer staples and real estate. Consumer staples and real estate still look to me, especially on trailing earnings, expensive. Uh, and they're not, you know, our starting point on a risk reward was negative from that valuation starting point. And again, if I think that earnings are going to reaccelerate in the S&P 500, it's not likely that either real estate or consumer staples are going to keep up in that environment. So even X, the recession risk, you're sort of in the risk reward negative bucket for me. Energy is different because a lot of investors want to buy it because fundamentals are good, or they were good. And the stocks are cheap. And I will tell you that historically speaking, that's one of the worst times to buy energy as a sector. It's the only cyclical sector that has gotten trough multiples on trough earnings consistently in history. You want to bet on the fact that it's going to be different this time because insert whatever uh, reason you have. I'm less uh, akin to betting against history. I think that the better fundamentals are, the worse they're likely to be in the future. So this, this peak operating margin is not likely to be sticky and valuation has historically not saved you. So and just another question just on uh, maybe equities versus bonds. Now you could, bond yields are good. You could uh, get a little more conservative, get a decent amount. Um, but, you know, it sounds like you like equities. So so why equities versus bonds or, uh, you know, why still stick with equities when you have such great bond rates today? Yes, you do. I, yes, I've heard that a lot. Can I just sit in cash and, and reap my 5% and not you know be upset about an equity market that's now actually up 20%? And the way I look at it is the differential between stocks and bonds is all driven by relative valuation and the relative returns that you've seen over the course of the last decade. Risk-adjusted returns, because bonds, especially government bonds, have been such poor performers, the risk-adjusted returns are now higher in equities than they are in bonds. And equities are still cheap on an equity risk premium when you look all the way back to the 50s. Yes, they're more expensive than they were in the, the financial crisis, but they're much, much more expensive than they were in the 90s when equities were a better risk-adjusted asset class. So you could definitely argue for the re-rating of equities relative to bonds, and that provides the upside. So I think on a relative valuation basis, and because of that prior performance being positive, I think that you can still argue that equities are going to be the pain trade higher relative to bonds. But I like bonds too. I think that you can still end up with that positive correlation that was so bad you know, as we entered. Um, the correction in 2022, which was a positive correlation to the downside, you could still enter that a positive correlation to the upside. I just think that most times in history when both asset classes work, which is not all that rare, um, that equities work. All right, so I'm gonna leave it there. This was fantastic as always. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Always great to be here, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. 
If you haven't done so, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.